Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'm speaking with Finn Brunton, the author of Spam, A Shadow History of the Internet. Finn Brunton is Assistant Professor of Information in the School of Information at the University of Michigan. Finn Brunton, thanks for taking time to speak to the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you for having me. You know, just about everyone listening to this has gotten some sort of email advertising something we aren't even remotely interested in and cursed the spammers who sent it. I will say that after reading this book, the world of spam is a lot bigger to me now than just Viagra ads and requests for help in transferring money. Is there a way for us to get our heads around what spam is generically, if not specifically? On a, there, I think there is actually, and I think that's part of what makes spam interesting as a subject is that we kind of, you know, we can start from the the, the local, the things that we've all experienced, you know, the Cialis ad or the reverse mortgage solicitation or the the phishing message that pretends to come from your bank. But if you follow the way the word has been used and also look at the underlying technical infrastructure of how spam functions, what it shows us and the way that we can kind of approach it as a general phenomenon is that. Network computers are a way of moving inf- or moving uh, moving attention around. I should say. I was about to say moving information around, and they do that as well. But the way we construe the value of information is relative to attention, um, is relative to its salience, to its significance to us, to responses for queries, to connections with meaningful people in our social system. And spam makes that visibly apparent by trying to take advantage of those systems, by trying to game the processes by which we decide that things are worthy or are not worthy of our attention, of our focus. If you expand your perspective on spam to begin to see it as an act of like parasitizing on pools of attention, then you remake the network into a set of ways of focusing on things. And I think that's actually a really useful perspective to have and one that's actually more relevant now and into the future as things become more social than it was in the past. I can tell from a personal point of view that it has evolved. This just happened to me recently. It used to be very obvious to me what spam was, but now I've recently gotten messages from a friend with a link, and their message is written in such a way that I can't necessarily tell if it's them. So I have to email them back to make sure that they actually sent me the first message. <laughs> yes, well, no, exactly, exactly. Like, so one of, the, one of the other areas in which this has changed in a really dramatic and interesting way over the history of spam is that... It's no longer just about, you know, one of, one of the sort of old models for understanding how spam works is, well, you know, so we've been through the series of transformations in media platforms. We used to live in a world, you know, just in the matter of the last few decades, that was fundamentally broadcast media, one to many, you know. I am Edward R. Murrow, and I speak, and millions of people listen. And that still exists, but on top of that has been built this whole additional layer of many to many media, you know, where we're all sort of exchanging among ourselves. We can do one one to one, we can do one to many, we can do many to one. And for a while, there was this model of spam as being something that was almost like forcibly reverting the network back to the earlier model. One person reaches out to many, you turn a pool of email addresses into a broadcast system for getting you know, your dumb used car ad out to as many people as possible. But the thing that really changed the structure, well, several things changed the structure of spam over the course of its history, but one of the most crucial was the use of algorithms to try to judge the value of messages, to try to figure out if messages were spam or not, to try to do a very crude version of what you've just described, to figure out, like, is this actually from a friend of mine? Is this something that I actually want access to? Or is this something that is, you know, 
misleading, scammy, unnecessary, just noise. And the response that the spammers developed for that, and this is where things get really fascinating, and where it kind of touches on this larger theme of how we judge attention and judge salience, was to build systems that could produce reasonably realistic simulations of like engaged human activity. So what we're seeing here is actually that, and we've done something kind of bizarre, which is that we've built an ad hoc Turing test. Um, you know, the sort of system for evaluating whether you're talking to an artificially intelligent computer or to a person and the sort of Turing model was always just, can it fool you? You know, like because asking whether or not the machine thinks is just way too vague and metaphysical. Can the machine trick you into thinking that you're talking to a person? Because if so, then it passes the essential sort of smell test that we have for interacting with people. So why not just kind of, you know, let it be, let it, let it be considered to be conscious. And so this is a kind of wonderful, very high level, very philosophical idea. But the spammers actually just instantiated it as practice. If we build filtering systems that are about evaluating whether or not uh, messages from a human and meaningful to us, and then you build mechanical systems that are producing fakes of those meaningful messages, and even in a situation like the one you describe, where we're now suddenly like in this permanent state of uncertainty and having to actually like, reach out to people to be like, now just to make sure, is this really you or is this just a convincing simulation of you? It makes me feel very old to realize that I have been alive during the entire history of this process. Let's go back to the early days of what would become the internet. Do we know anything about the first message that could be considered an unwanted commercial solicitation and the response it received? Well, that's actually a really good question because it kind of cuts to the core of spam as such because the word spam has actually had several different meanings over the course of of its use in a way that we would recognize now. And of course, we're not talking about the lunch meat here, although believe it or not, actually, the lunch meat as the basis for a joke in a Monty Python sketch became the basis for the word as we know it on the internet. Because in these very early pre-internet networks, um, people, you know, who were of course nerds who were hanging out in these systems were nerds and therefore also loved Monty Python. And so they would like do the routine, the spam sketch over and over to each other and it was very annoying. And so that gave spam, the word, this value for a particular activity which was being irritating in a way that was like repetitious and time-wasting, you know, being like kind of a waste of bandwidth, a waste of time and attention. And funnily enough, early on in these networks, spam as an activity was actually distinguished from commercial speech. They were seen as two separate kinds of problems. Like commercial speech was it was tricky because it could sometimes actually be useful if it was like, you know, if it was a small group of geeks who are really into computer hardware, someone saying, hey, I want to sell this machine or, hey, I've got a contract for these. Does anyone want in on it? That could actually be very valuable. That could be quite salient. Spam, on the other hand, was just this kind of like trolley pranking, you know, dumping junk into a channel that's often a very narrow, very tight, low bandwidth channel in these early days, such that other people couldn't say what they needed to say, you would overload the conversation, all that stuff. So that's what makes it a little complex, because we can go back to actually very early on, um, like pre completely pre-internet, much less pre-web, and we can see things that look like spam behavior. Um, there's a famous uh, incident on Usenet, which was a network for passing messages from computer to computer that ended up building sort of a worldwide network that was completely separate from the, 
you know, military corporate internet. Um, on Usenet, there's a famous kind of unfortunate event where someone posted, someone was trying to sell a dinette set in New Jersey. And because of the way Usenet's messaging protocols work, that message just kept being copied from computer to computer until people were getting it on Australia. But that was, you know, that was just an accident. That wasn't an intentional thing, but you can see it's kind of edging into this space. And similarly, there were there were people, um, you know, trying to do, again, this question of salience, trying to do like somewhat official things that seemed to cross a line. So on ARPANET, the Advanced Research Projects Agencies Network, which was sort of the, the proto-internet in many ways, and where a lot of the protocols that we now use were first developed, um, ARPANET had a tiny collection, really just a few thousand people, many of whom were the architects of the network themselves, when um, a representative from a major computer corporation, the Digital, Equipments Corpor or Digital Equipment Corporation, um, wanted to announce that they were rolling out these new machines that came with like built-in ARPANET connections and like news that was actually really relevant to the tiny community of people on defense contracts who could afford to buy these devices. And so he emailed indiscriminately everyone who was on ARPANET, all the addresses on the West Coast. And that message like provoked this huge storm of controversy. But again, it's not quite spam yet because it seems indiscriminate, but it was actually quite discriminate. Like there were only a few people in the world who could actually afford to buy one of the machines he was selling or would be interested in doing so. And almost all of them were on this list. So, you know, they didn't like it. They pushed back. There was a lot of communal conversation, but it's still, you can see we're kind of moving step by step. And then the really lightning strike moment, the moment when the term spam for internet misbehavior generally gets like shifted over into talking about the kinds of messages that we now recognize as spam happens in 1994. It happens on Usenet, on that same network of, you know, people circulating messages from PC to PC. Um, and it was actually uh, done by these two lawyers um, who were, I believe, had, uh, had you know, were, were licensed to practice in Tennessee, but were now based in Arizona. And they were these kind of somewhat shady lawyers who were taking advantage of the green card lottery that had been instituted, which was trying to expand the pool of availability for people who are trying to get access to green cards by essentially presenting themselves as necessary mediators for something that was really just a lottery. You just had to like send in a postcard to be entered into the pool, but they wanted to announce their services. And they smeared their message across every news group on Usenet, a massive blast of messages. And that was the moment where people were suddenly like, wait a second, commercial activity and people breaking the rules of salience on the internet, spreading messages that are not relevant or not meaningful to the discussion at hand, those two things are becoming the same thing. Those things are becoming allied. And that's really a problem because people violating those areas of activity, those areas of salience, that's fine. We can manage that. But when it gets connected with making money, that's when things become truly uh, problematic for the future of the network, if there's a way to actually make it pay. But wasn't the response to that, which gets into an earlier part of your book, that, yeah, perhaps these two lawyers violated norms, but these norms were created by the communities themselves and had no legal standing. And the point the lawyers made was, it's nice that you have these behavioral norms, but who died and made you the boss of the Internet? That's, that's, that's the exact issue that this kind of provoked. And, yeah, one of they had a really... Um, a really, they wrote this book, which has a very classic kind of like mid-90s internet boom title, which was uh, How to Make a Fortune on the Information Superhighway. 
it's sort of so perfectly embedded in its own time. But the funny thing about reading the book is along with, you know, a whole, whole lot of archaic strategies for doing these various things, it has these really chilling statements about the internet and Usenet and all of these, you know, the web, the, the, these, all of these systems as they were kind of burgeoning out. And these statements were chilling because the network had been sort of rolling along on this weird combination of occasional, depending on which network you're talking about, occasional university, institutional, corporate, or government oversight, but often very occasional, and then a really strong dose of self-regulation. There were all these people on the various you know, flavors of early computer networks who, just as a matter of course, some of them with more kind of you know, proclamations than others, were inventing um, somewhat anarchistic, uh, both in the sense of, you know, loose and crazy, but also in the sense of, you know, organically evolving communal rules, um, somewhat libertarian, somewhat democratic systems for, for managing good and bad behavior, figuring out how people should act and how we get to decide how people should act and who's in charge of enforcing those decisions. Like they were inventing all this stuff for themselves and they were doing so in a really rich, socially thoughtful, nuanced way. It's, it's fascinating to watch. And then, yeah, the moment that this happens, the moment that green card lottery hits, you can see people starting to freak out a little bit because they're like, wait a second, we're going to have to actually get the feds involved. If there's like money, you know, if there's fraud, if there's fraud happening across state lines and you can see them debate it and you can actually see, and it's really extraordinary. You can see these posts where people are starting to come out directly and be like, well, they've made the point in their book and in their interviews with the New York Times and in all these different places that these lawyers sort of, you know, had a public voice. Um, these two lawyers keep saying over and over, and they're right, that there's all these sort of weird communal restrictions that these people have developed, you know, developed on the, on the network, but those don't actually have any real power. They have no enforcement power. They have no connection to the sort of legal context in which they live. These are just these kind of like, you know, it would be cool if everyone did like so kinds of kinds of things. Um, and at one point in the book, um, Cantor and Siegel, these lawyers say something along the lines of um, the people who spend a great deal of time there think of cyberspace as being a real place. But it is not a real place in the same sense that the United States is a real place. And this was this just pure classic power move, like suddenly demonstrating you guys thought that you were evolving a society, but what you were evolving was a weird set of communal norms that are immediately trumped by the legal, economic, and social context in which you live. And they, they were able to kind of play that trump card. And in many ways, the, the internet, Usenet, web communities that had formed came up short and had to start reinventing how they managed themselves, how they managed order. So coming to today, have the forms of spam stabilized? Are we just seeing variations on previously known forms of spam? Or are we now seeing new, more insidious forms out there on the internet? It's definitely the latter. It's, it's funny because um, we, are, we are, I believe, at the close in many ways of, the particular, of per, a particular kind of spam, which is this kind of most immediately visible, 
um, you know, email spam about, you know, erectile dysfunction drugs or whatever. Um, we've developed such good filtering systems. If you live inside of Gmail, you very, very rarely encounter spam because they've been able to do such a good job of getting the law of large numbers on their side and use everyone's email as this huge corpus for running their filtering systems, as well as many other elements that exist now that did not exist before, like real-time threat maps and things like that. However, even as that's happening, there is this really interesting evolution that's starting to happen in the context of social networks, in the context of targeted messages rather than indiscriminate messages, um, and in the space of increasingly sophisticated machine-generated forms of spam. So one of my favorite examples of this is um, Actually, there's, there's, there's two that we can use to give like the two different sides of this. So one is that many people have now experienced what are called phishing messages, which are the emails that you get that purport to be from your bank or from PayPal or whatever that are asking, you know, saying like X, Y, and Z has happened. We need you to log in here. When you click the link, you're taken to a landing page that's a mock-up of uh, your bank's actual page. And when you enter your information there, it goes to the scammer's computer, and then they can use that to log in as you and transfer assets and do all that sort of thing. So those have been around for a while. But what has changed that's really interesting is that now the increasingly dense mesh of personal information that's available about people online that accumulates through their use of things like social networks means that you can start developing really, really precisely targeted messages. Um, messages that go well beyond this kind of generic thing. Messages that hit that particular like sweet spot where you're suddenly in genuine doubt about whether or not you are whether or not you are interacting with a person that you know or an institution that you trust. These are so-called like spear phishing attacks. There are other versions along these lines, but the network context has changed to the degree that spam is no longer this kind of like indiscriminate spraying of a hundred million messages in hopes that you'll get a thousand responses. Instead, it's about targeting high value, um, high value people that you can then do research, put together very thorough dossiers, build an extremely convincing simulation, whether it's of a financial institution or a message from someone who's close to them, who's unexpectedly in trouble and needs money wired or, or what have you. So that's kind of one area that started to change, that you get these very, very detailed and much harder to stop and harder to filter messages. But the other that's really interesting is that the development and sophistication of the machine systems, the, the systems that are generating text and, and doing things like that, has now produced phenomena like this. Um, there's this Twitter account called Horse Ebooks, Horse underscore Ebooks. And it's this Twitter account that was actually set up it's posted to by a bot, by a program that is posting essentially a mix of just kind of, you know, syntactic gibberish that seems human and varied enough that Twitter's system won't notice that it's a spam bot, but also posting links to a site where, it, where uh, the person who set up the bot is selling these wholly machine-generated books about horses, which is why it's called horse underscore ebooks. And weirdly, it's it's this business that actually sort of works. Horse ebooks has had a very unusual fate because the engine that he was using to generate the text, the phrases that it was using as tweets, um, actually turned out to be so unintentionally hilarious that it developed this huge cult following and kind of drew all of this attention to this uh, to this particular um, account. 
But nonetheless, the model there is that the machines have become sophisticated enough that you can build this whole like infrastructure, a little society where there's like a Twitter account in support of it and you see the account and you're curious about this book about horses and you click the link and it takes you to the page and the page sells you an ebook. And all of those things are produced entirely by autonomous systems with very little human intervention. The ability to offload labor onto, onto machines is going to be a really significant part of the new, more social, more complex forms of spam that we're seeing. Finn Brunton, the author of Spam, A Shadow History of the Internet. Thanks for talking to the MIT Press Podcast today. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a pleasure. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash MIT Press. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2013, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.